Hi, my name's Mark Kelly and I'm part of the leadership at City Church Leeds and I want to thank you for downloading this podcast. You join us as we're journeying through the Gospel of Matthew and trying to understand what it really means to live in the Kingdom of God. For more information, other resources and media, please visit our website, citychurchleads.net. Search for us on Facebook or catch us on Twitter at cc underscore leads. We look forward to connecting with you. Welcome, Jeff. Well, it's really great to be with you this morning and uh, just great to see some new faces here as well. Since I was last there in December, it's always nice to see new happy smiley faces. And uh, it's always nice to come here now because I live in Yorkshire, no longer live in the Midlands, so it's a lot easier to get here on a Sunday morning. You know, I've been coming to this church both driving other ministers and ministering myself the last probably 12 years. And uh, I'm so excited about the life that's here in this moment right now. You may think, well, there's not enough numbers, but there's such life here. And I just believe it's, there's, a, there's been a shift in the atmosphere in this congregation. And I'm excited for you, and I want to be part of it with you, of uh, what's going on. It's really great. I just want to bring greetings from my wife and my kids. They're not with us this morning. My wife was doing a a women's ministry meeting yesterday, and she's just resting on the chairs in in the church this morning. But uh, it was a great time. You know, last night we had the privilege of meeting some old friends that we'd not met for 10 years. And they um, were a young couple that I knew from university who got married and went up to a place called Openshaw in Manchester with the Eden Project. And they started a church there. The Salvation Army gave them an old dilapidated building, which was nice of them. And uh, they did it up and they sort of started to reach out into a community. And they've spent really the last, well, they went up there in 2001, so the last 12, 13 years bringing up their family in a very deprived area, reaching out to drug addicts and all sorts of different people in the underclass in our society, and seeing amazing testimonies of what God is doing. And their church mostly is made up of people who've come to Christ in the last 10 years out of that environment. It's just awesome to sit with them and chat and catch up. Uh, It was too long. You know when you've been away from old friends and you meet them again, it was just a wonderful opportunity. Interestingly, this year, they made the decision as a church to to move away from their connection with the Salvation Army. The reason being is the particular areas, uh, offices in that area were deciding that, okay, now the church is established and now the building's being used. We'll come in and put our own people in there and you just have to submit to that. And um, these guys, they're all sort of maybe my age and younger, so 35 down. They... uh, really felt that this wasn't, this was going to compromise the vision that God had put on their hearts. And there was no, there's no rebellion in these people, you know, they, they just love God, they want to serve God. But they made a real raw and confident decision to step out from that nomination and just go with what God was putting on their hearts. And it's amazing the connection that's opened up from them. It's amazing the things that are happening because they're being true to the vision that God placed on the heart while honoring relationships to the best of their ability. They're not going to be confined by the status quo. And uh, I just wanted to say that I really believe that this is an hour where churches and leaders and people in places that God has placed them and the vision they've been given 
We need to honor relationships, but also step out from status quo. And I'm excited that talking with those guys last night, knowing the heart of these guys here, that God is doing some amazing things across our nation. Such a privilege to speak on Matthew 7 this morning. I think uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 for me, the Sermon on the Mount, is just one of the greatest things ever taught and written on the face of the earth. So it's a real privilege to to share something about laying hold of the kingdom this morning. I'm just going to pray. Father, I thank you for every precious person in this room. I thank you for every prayer they pray, every mind thought that goes towards you, every desire of the heart that goes towards you. You know your children intimately. You know every hair on their head. You know every circumstance of their life, and you absolutely adore them and love them. And Father, I pray this morning as we just turn to your word that your Holy Spirit would just speak to every heart. And Father, we would walk out again encountering you, encountering your word, encountering your spirit, and being changed from the inside out. Amen. Well, we'll go to Matthew 7, shall we? I know you had uh, Ian Russell last week. He's a good friend of mine. It's difficult to follow Ian Russell. He's such a good preacher, but we'll, we'll do our best. Praise God. And uh, I've known Ian since 1996. I was in Leicester with him for many years, actually. And he's just such a great guy, and I'm sure you were blessed last week. I noticed his books here. I haven't got a book, okay? But I may may work on that at some point, all right? But that's a good book to buy that. Matthew chapter 7. I just want to share a few thoughts this morning from this amazing chapter. And they're, they're really an eclectic bunch of thoughts So forgive me if we go here, there, and everywhere, but it's a bit more of an exposition of a few parts of this chapter about laying hold of the kingdom. The first few verses it talks about, and I'm using one of these so I may get distracted, it talks about um, perception, how we perceive things. So the first thing Jesus says in this chapter is, do not judge. What an amazing statement, do not judge or you too will be judged. I believe what Jesus is talking about specifically is judging people. You know, as church leaders and as Christians, we have to have a judgment. We have to have a, um, a, a biblical viewpoint on issues in our society. There's nothing wrong with that. But there's a difference between that and judging people. There's a big difference of heart. There's a big difference of attitude in that. Jesus says, do not judge, or you too will be judged, for in the same way you judge others. Have you noticed? The same manner you judge others. It's all about the heart. It's all about the attitude of the heart. In the same manner you judge others, you will be judged in that manner. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust? This is verse, the next verse. The speck of sawdust in your brother's eye, And pay no attention to the plank in your own. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. This amazing statement is probably the foundational thesis to a lot of psychology in terms of projection. The idea we project onto others something that we have a problem with in ourselves. Jesus coined it 2,000 years ago in this statement. And it's the idea that 
Alan, you've got glasses on today. So if I looked at you close enough into your glasses, into your eyes, what would I see if I looked at you close enough? I would see a reflection of me. And the idea is that sometimes the attitude in which we judge others, usually we find something negative in somebody else that actually is something that we're struggling with or something we don't like about ourselves. God wants to take us out of that mire, that marshland of comparing each other and judging somebody else uh, with the same level that you judge yourself and realize that in Christ we have come out of that realm and we, according to the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we judge no one from a worldly point of view. It goes on in that chapter to say God has reconciled the whole world to himself in Christ. So therefore, the, the manner in which we see people needs to be the same manner in which the Father sees people. It needs to be the same manner in which the, the love of God compels us to see people. You know, it goes on to say in this, this chapter, Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under feet and turn and tear you to pieces. It's the idea that this beautiful gospel, this message we carry, some people aren't ready to hear it, both in the church and in the world, because they see themselves as so worthless, like a dog or a pig, that if you share this message time and time again, it still won't go in. They'll still throw it away. The Apostle Peter he talks about this kind of identity of a dog and a pig in 2 Peter 2.22. And he says that a dog returns to its own vomit and a pig to the mud that they, they, they go around and squelch in. It's the idea that if you see yourself and I see myself from a worthless position, we're going to go back to worthless things. But if we see ourselves in Christ, we'll move away from what is worthless and pick up what is worthy. If we see ourselves in Christ, we'll see what is worthy in others instead of what is worthless. This is what Jesus is talking about, I believe. You know, we have a number of people in the last six months who've come to Christ in the church, and one of them comes to me quite regularly and asks questions. And one of the questions this lady asked recently, a lot of these questions come from her son who declares he's an atheist, but he asks his mom questions to ask. So his mom comes and asks me questions. One of the questions is, what do you think or what does God think or what does the Bible think of gay marriage? You know when you get those sort of questions, you're not really ready for them? <laughs> I know where I stand on that, but I wanted to deliver it in a way that was gracious and a way that had an attitude of non-judgmentalism, but adhering to the truth. <clears throat> and I just uh, sort of pondered and, and, and looked at her as though I was looking intelligent, but inside I'm saying, God help. <laughs> Please give me something wise to say here. And I have thought about this issue a lot, and I think it's an issue that Christians generally face. We're, we're called bigoted if we take a certain stance on this issue. And I just want to share very briefly that I believe that we are not here to judge people. We are not here to judge people. I don't even believe we're here to judge their lifestyles. So, for example, in John's Gospel, chapter 16, it's very clear when you read 
Jesus talking about the work of the Holy Spirit and what he'd come to do. He says this, that when the Holy Spirit comes, he'll come to convict the world of sin. A few verses later, he describes what kind of sin the Holy Spirit comes to convict the world of. The sin, you can read it yourself later in John 16, the sin of not believing in Jesus. The only thing that the Holy Spirit has come to convict the world of is the rejection of Jesus and are not accepting Jesus as Lord and Savior. And I believe sometimes if we moralize too much on these issues, instead of preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, we alienate people instead of bringing life and peace. So the question came, what do you think of gay marriage? So I said this, that I believe that human beings are more than their sexuality. They're not identified by their sexuality. They're identified by a God who loves them. And in Christ, we are neither male nor female, slave nor free. We are one in Christ. So the identity that you have is so limited in the way we think compared to how God sees us. So what about gay marriage? Well, I believe that marriage, the sanctity of marriage, that marriage is between a man and a woman. And that it's done there... It's done between a man and a woman as a picture of Christ and his bride. That there's a bigger agenda behind this whole issue. It's an agenda to undermine the word of God, an agenda to undermine family and undermine marriage. So the follow-up question was this, well, do you not agree with civil partnerships? And my answer to that was this, I don't agree with gay marriage, but I have no problem with civil partnerships in a society that wants justice. And I shared this example. I was watching a late night talk show with Piers Morgan, not my favorite person, but I'm learning to love. And um, <clears throat> he was interviewing Elton John. And he was interviewing Elton John, and he was saying to Elton John, why did you, why were you the, one of the first people with your uh, partner, David Furnish, why were you the first people to go and receive a civil partnership and, and really campaign for civil partnerships? And Elton John said this. He said, well, I've known so many people over the years, so many gay couples over the years, who have been ostracized from family and friends and society and lived together monogamously for many, many years. And because they've got nothing legal that shows that when one partner dies, the other can inherit all that they've, they've done together, suddenly the family that rejected comes in and takes all their stuff, and the partner's left destitute. And he said, I just don't think that's fair. And I just felt in my own heart, I don't think that's fair either. That's not justice. So whether we agree with the morality of the issue, I believe that God wants us to be a people that show grace and justice while holding on to the truth. Because Jesus, I don't believe, ever moralized into society. He came to save people. And I don't believe we need to judge or classify different kinds of sin. It's all about either you or you submitting to Jesus. That's the bottom line. So it says, do not judge. The next part of this chapter I want to look at briefly, it's talking about receiving from God particularly. And it says in verse 7, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. It's kind of simple, really, isn't it? Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? 
Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake. Or if you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. What an amazing statement. If you ask, you'll receive. If you seek, you'll find. If you knock, the door will be open. It's almost like Jesus says, it's a, it's a done deal. Why are you striving anymore? Why are you jumping through hoops? Why am I jumping through hoops? When Jesus says, if you knock, the door will be opened. If you ask, you'll receive. It's just so simple. And sometimes we make people and ourselves jump through so many religious hoops in order to receive from God. And God is not like that. Jesus then goes on to explain something about the heart of the Father. And it's a beautiful passage that, that when you ask your father for something, this is what he will give. And, you know, whether you've had a good earthly father or a bad earthly father, I had sort of a middling to bad earthly father in some respects. But what I would say is this, that in the midst of all that, there is no father like the heavenly father. And he absolutely loves you. And I was just thinking, because I'm a dad of two kids and, I was just thinking some things about the Father heart of God towards us as his children. And I wonder if I was to ask you as parents today, does any of you keep a record of what your children do? Just wave at me if you keep a record of what your children do. Whether it's photographs, whether it's keepsakes from holidays, stored in shoeboxes, yeah. We do that as parents, don't we? I remember moving from the Midlands last August to here. Half the van was full of keepsakes of our kids. The rest of it was furniture. That's my wife more than me, but we do, we do kind of hoard stuff like that. But, you know, looking through those shoe boxes and those boxes of keepsakes, of, of the first drawing and the second drawing, then by the 30th drawing, you kind of think, I need to file these drawings somewhere. Okay, and, and all these things that happen with your kids. You know, we didn't see one thing in those shoeboxes that was a record of their wrongs. There wasn't one moment, one page, one slip that said, on this day, our daughter Sophie did this bad thing, or on this day, our son Joel did this. We didn't have any of that. You know, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13 that God keeps no record of our wrongs. Love keeps no record of our wrongs. God is love. He keeps no record of our wrongs. You know, he's planned, according to Ephesians 2.10, he's planned for us to do certain good works. And before, we'll stand before him one day and be judged on the works we've done. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 to 15, it talks about the great white throne being set up. And everybody who's died and everybody's ever lived coming before the throne of God. And they'll be judged according to what they've done. My question is this. For us as believers, if he keeps no record of our wrongs, what are we going to be judged for? Well, I believe we're going to be judged for the good works he predestined us to do before the world began. Ephesians 2, verse 10. He'll be asking us, how did that go? How did that go? And the books that he'll open will be 
the joy of a father opening books to his children and say, hey, remember when we did this together? Remember when we did this together? You see, there's no fear in death and there's no fear in judgment for you and me because he keeps no record of our wrongs and the records he keeps are just those wonderful things that we have been co-workers with him in doing in our generation. Isn't that good? Isn't that good? And sometimes, you know, when we listen to this stuff, we can think, wow. Bless you. You know, sometimes when we listen to this stuff, we can think, man, this is too good to be true. Or this seems like hyper grace. It's not hyper grace. It's the heart of a father. Father paid the ultimate price to keep no record of our wrongs. He paid the ultimate price to bring us back into his family. And it was his son, Jesus, who sacrificed himself. This is not cheap grace. This is ultimate ultimate treasured grace. And this grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness, but my word, what a father we have. The next part of this chapter talks about two gates. And it talks about simply a narrow gate and a wide gate. And we won't turn to it for sake of time, but just to say the narrow gate is Jesus. It's not you trying to do things in your own strength to win God's approval. The narrow gate is Christ. There's, there's a big wide open gate, which is works of the law, trying to be a better person, trying to follow a certain religion. How many religions are there on the face of the earth that will make us better people when the only person who can make us a better person is Jesus Christ? And He is the only way. He is the only truth. He is the only life. Jesus said about Himself in John 10, verses 7 to 9, that He is the gate. He's the only way to access heaven and the presence of God right now. The next thing in this chapter, it talks about two trees in terms of people. It talks about false prophets, verses 15 to 20. Let's read it. <clears throat> Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes and figs from thistles? It goes on, it says, Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, and a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. An amazing scripture which highlights the fact that it's a direct referral back to Genesis. It's a direct referral back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 18, where it says, Jesus is saying, you can't pick good fruit from thorn bushes, and you cannot pick good fruit from thistles. Two representations of the curse. That the ground was cursed because of the fall. The ground was cursed because of man's complete and utter rebellion against God. And Jesus is saying, look, you cannot, if that kind of fall mentality, if that kind of I will get ahead on my own without God mentality is in us, we're not going to produce the fruit that God looks for. But the fruit that God looks for comes from abiding in the finished work of Jesus Christ. What He has accomplished for us, to rest in that, that our work and our labor 
in the gospel comes from our rest and our position in Christ bought with his precious blood. Can anybody say amen to that? It says, likewise, every good tree bears good fruit. When it says the word good there, there are a number of Greek words to define that phrase good that we have in English. And likewise, every good tree, the word in Greek there is agathos or well. So every tree that's well in itself will produce good fruit. The word good there in terms of fruit is valuable. It's kalos, valuable or beautiful fruit. So if we take hold of the grace of God and realize that we are well on the inside and worthy on the inside because of Jesus, that alone will help us produce good fruit. A tree doesn't necessarily work hard to produce fruit. A tree simply produces fruit because it's a tree. So we've been told, look at Galatians, all the fruit of the Spirit. We've got to work hard to produce the fruit of the Spirit in our life. But if we realize that we are already filled with the Holy Ghost, and we are a tree that is well and worthy because of Jesus, because He hung on a tree to make us a worthy tree, then we'll produce fruit without trying to in our own strength. Interestingly, it says, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. The word bad there is sapros, which means rotten or worthless. If we see ourselves as worthless, if we see ourselves as rotten people, guess what? We're going to produce bad fruit. It's all about perception. It's all about perceiving a new kingdom, laying hold of that new kingdom, that new way of operating, that new way of being. Amen? The word bad fruit there is the word poneros, which means to be under the influence of evil, to be hurtful, or to press down by labor and toil. It's a direct reference back to the fall, that your work will now become laborious and difficult. Oh, there was work before the fall. It was called being a co-creator. But after it became hard and difficult. You know, whatever you're called to do in this life, you can do it in a yoking with Christ working with you on this planet. Or you can do it on your own. But if we see ourselves as good, as well because of Christ, if we see ourselves as rotten and unworthy, we'll produce fruit after our own kind. The next part of this chapter talks about two hearts. And this is a passage of Scripture that I remember as a teenager hearing a particular evangelical preacher share on. And he shared on it in the context of the fact that the gifts of the Spirit are now passed away. And here is a reference for that. That, you know, these people who move in prophecy or they move in spiritual gifts, really, it's, they don't even know God. Okay, And even when you read this, there can be kind of an apprehension come in your heart because you think, well, do I, I may do some things for God, but do I really know God? Is He going to accept me? Is He going to reject me on the day? So let's read it together. <coughs> Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you practices of lawlessness or you evildoers. This is quite a strong scripture, isn't it? But have you noticed how these particular people came to Jesus and said, Lord, Lord? They came to Jesus and said, Lord, look, on that day of judgment, they came to Jesus and said, look, look, Jesus, what we've done for you. We've prophesied, we've healed, we've done these amazing things. We are worthy to come into your kingdom on the basis of what we have done. He says, I, you've really gone down the wrong tangent because as far as I'm concerned, the only reason you can come into my kingdom, the only reason you are my children is because what, have I, what I've done, not what you have done. So at the basic level of understanding Christ and being intimate with Christ, they really didn't get it. They really didn't get it. This is not talking about those who mess up sometimes, those who diligently want to follow Jesus but occasionally mess up in going to sin and have to be forgiven. It's not talking, it's saying about those who don't recognize the truth of the matter, that the only reason we can come to Jesus, the only reason we are the righteousness of God is because we are in Christ Jesus. It is not a work of ourselves, it is the grace of God that saved us. And it's all about two hearts. Are we, if, as the people of God, going to have a broken, cold heart justified by our work and our credentials and all the things that, that make us seem good to the world? You know, you meet people sometimes at pastors' conferences, and before you can get their name, they tell you how many people's in their church. My point being is this. It's all about what he has done and our identity being found in him, not in what we have done or not done. That God wants us to be so secure in the love that he has for us that we don't need to justify ourselves. We don't need to waste time in useless arguments. We don't need always to be right. You know, I remember a time in my life when I was so good at winning arguments. I mean, I was, if I was in the Cubs or the Scouts, I would have a badge for it. Winner of arguments. I was excellent at it. The problem is I didn't win any people. God's love is all about winning people. It says, the Bible says, the kindness of God leads them to change the way they think. The kindness of God leads them to change the way they think. I love that beautiful moment in the film, The Gladiator, where there's this discussion between the Caesar and I think it's Marcus Aurelius and he said, or I think it may be his sister or somebody, he has a discussion with the Caesar and he says this, he says, the greater you are, the more merciful you can afford to be. The greater you are, the more merciful you can afford to be. If you see God as great, he's not great by his punishment, he's great by his mercy. Because he has all the power. He has all the power to destroy us. And yet, because of who he is, he cannot do it. He loves us. 
He loves us because of what he's done. Isn't that amazing? Well, I think it is anyway. I'm going to finish with the last part of this chapter. Two foundations. It's a lovely little picture that Jesus paints for us. We used to sing songs of it as, as kids. Some of us who grew up in church, the wise man builds his house upon the rock. Remember that? I just love this passage. But sometimes because we get so familiar with certain passages, we can miss out on some of the amazing things that are in these passages. I'm not going to read it because I'm sure many of us are familiar. If you're not familiar with it, it's Matthew 7, 24 to 28. There's two foundations we can build our lives on, sand or rock. And the rock is? Woohoo! And the sand is? Ah. The sand, yeah, exactly. The sand is the world. The sand speaks of loose foundation. It's a loose foundation. It's any other teaching other than that of Christ and any other person other than Christ. What are we building our lives on? What foundation are we building our lives on? Even as Christians, we can build our foundation on the superstar minister that we idolize or the celebrity on TV that we want to be like. Please God, no. We can build our lives on these things as our foundation. We can build our lives on our education. We can build our lives on our money. We can build our lives on all this stuff. <clears throat> but according to Jesus, it's a loose foundation. The only thing that is strong, the only thing that will keep us in the midst of the tempest and storm is Christ, the solid rock. Paul puts it this way when he talks to the Galatians about the legalistic teaching they were getting back under. He says this to them. He says, look, if anybody comes and speaks to you about a gospel of Christ that is different to the one I speak to you, let them be double accursed. <clears throat> the gospel is not about a little bit of grace and a little bit of works. It's about all grace so we can get on with God's work. Amen? And we as the people of God, need and require to find, found our lives again in Christ, to know nothing except Christ and Him crucified and Him resurrected from the dead. Ephesians 2, 17 to 22 says this, And He came and preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. For through Him we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. Christ is our cornerstone. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And it goes on. So it talks about this foundation of Christ that was laid by prophets and apostles. And it's talking specifically in this chapter about the prophets from Genesis to Malachi, who spoke about the coming of the Christ and laid the foundation in all their teaching that yes, 
there's a, um, a line, there's a law that we can never keep. We need a Savior. His name is Jesus. We need a Messiah. His name is Jesus. He's coming soon. We're laying this foundation. We're laying it down. We're laying it down. Then Jesus comes along. And the last of those prophets, what does the last of those prophets say about Jesus? John the Baptist says this. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Didn't come to judge the world, but to take away sin, to eradicate sin and sin consciousness from people. Condemnation from people, guilt from people, fear from people, punishment from people. Can I suggest to you, there is no punishment for you and me in God, because in 1 John 4, 16 and 17, it says that God is love, and in perfect love, there is no fear, because fear has to do with punishment. I believe sometimes as human beings, we are more eager and ready to punish than our Father is. Just to throw a thought out there for you. Hope it's not too controversial this morning, but bless you. And these prophets, they laid this foundation. Jesus, Jesus, he's coming, he's coming. And when you turn over into the Gospels, Matthew through Mark through Luke through John. What does it say? And Jesus did this to fulfill what was said by the prophet. And Jesus did that to fulfill what was said by the prophet. And Jesus was born here to fulfill what was said by the prophet. What power these guys had as they spoke the word of God. The apostle Peter says, the spirit of Christ within them foretold the coming of Christ. It was all about Jesus. The foundation was all about Jesus. Jesus. And then Jesus started his ministry. And what did he say? You very naughty people. No. He said, I've come to heal the brokenhearted. I've come to preach the gospel to the poor. I've come to bind up the brokenhearted. I've come to declare the day of God's favor. The day when the free favors of God profusely abound. This message was so liberating, it got religious people so mad, they tried to kill him the first time he mentioned it. Talk about that for preacher feedback. Try to throw him off a cliff. We haven't got that bad yet, have we, Mark? <laughs> but this message was so liberating. It so flew in the face of religion. That it changed people's lives. And he picked fishermen and tax collectors and dubious characters. He picked disciples up who were ex-prostitutes. One called Mary Magdalene. And they went about. He used Mary Magdalene to, was the first person to foretell, to tell people about the resurrection. This was an amazing fellow. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he picked these disciples and the twelve he drew to himself and he called them apostles. With these apostles, most of them did amazing things in their generation, some of which wrote parts of the New Testament. He called Paul to be a man after his own heart and carry the gospel of grace, a man who was so caught in legalism and so caught in religion that he would kill to keep people in it. And yet Jesus changed his heart. And he worked with all God's energy in him for the establishment of the gospel of grace. These apostles, they laid the foundation, which was Christ. And today, 
in our generation, we are graced with apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and evangelists. Based on Ephesians 4, and it says that Jesus, when he ascended, he sat down and he gave these gifts out. And what are those apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and evangelists there to do? They're there to build the body of Christ up. They're there to lay that foundation. They're there to build up Christ so that the body looks like Jesus, just like the foundation looks like Jesus. They are not here as people to become the foundation. Jesus is the only foundation. They are here to build up the body of Christ. Hallelujah. I'm going to finish with the words of Paul talking about this foundation, this rock on which we stand, this Jesus, Christ crucified, Christ raised from the dead, our only Lord, our only Savior, our only way to the Father. And he's speaking in Acts 20. You can turn to it if you like. Acts 20, he's speaking to a group of leaders in the church in Ephesus. And he's about to leave them, this aged apostle, who didn't create a culture of, per of personality around himself, but he just laid the foundation, Jesus. If, I, don't, I don't care if I'm not even mentioned, as long as it's Jesus. That was Paul's heart. And he says these beautiful words. This is verse 24 to 27. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Listen to that. He equates the testimony of the gospel of grace with preaching the kingdom. If you want to lay hold of the kingdom of God, it's time again to lay hold of the gospel of grace. The kingdom of God is not an external thing that is imposed upon you. Jesus says the kingdom is within you. Paul goes on to say this, Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore I declare to you that I am innocent of the blood of, of any of you. Because he's, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. If you're asking today what the will of God is, the will of God is for you to know his grace, which will, the, is the only person that will change your heart. The, the grace of God is the Holy Spirit. He's called in Hebrews 10, 29, the Spirit of grace. He is the only one that can change your heart. Not external imposition, not commandments. The only person who can change your heart is when the Holy Spirit gets hold of the Word of God and changes you from the inside. If we want to lay hold of the kingdom and bring that kingdom around us, we have first got to lay hold of the gospel of grace. Stand with me, please. Just close your eyes in His presence. We sang this morning, your grace is enough for me. My question is simply this, is it? Or do we try and add stuff to it? Do we add stuff to it in our own lives? Do we add stuff to it in the lives of the people we meet? 
Are we still judging people from a worldly point of view? Are we still so insecure that we've not received the Father's love to such an extent that we can know that he keeps no record of our wrongs and therefore let's not keep record of other people's wrongs? Are we going to choose the tree of life? Are we going to choose a broken heart that's bound up by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Are we going to choose the narrow gate, the gate that has been rejected, the one that is a stumbling block, Jesus, or are we going to still try and do it in our own? Are we going to base ourselves on the foundation of even our denomination, our religion, or the fact that we have apostles and prophets? Or are we going to base ourselves on the foundation of Christ? Is Christ enough for you? Because laying hold of his kingdom is simply about making the decision that Christ is enough for me. Father, I thank you for every precious person here this morning. And Father, I pray, Lord, that they will just have such an encounter with you in your word and in your presence that everyone, including myself, every day will come to the decision that you, Jesus, Jesus Christ, you are more than enough for us. Amen. Bless you guys. We show appreciation to, to Jeff. Thanks, buddy. Another challenging word, I think. Lots to think about. It's a catch-up online, citychurchleads.net. In this house, we are real. But we also make mistakes. And when we do, we make sure we say, I'm sorry. We give second chances to anyone. We also have lots of fun. In this house, we definitely forgive. We also do loud. And we give the best hugs. We are family. And in this house, that means we love.